Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. This is 365 Sports, powered by Sikkim365.com. Joined now by Cole Kubelik of SEC Network, ESPN. Cole, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This has been off the field, about to be on the field. One of the maybe more intriguing weeks in the SEC with Mike Elko getting hired at A&M, Bobby Petrino going back to Arkansas as their offensive coordinator. And, oh, by the way, uh, there is Alabama and Georgia on Saturday afternoon in a game that will shape the entire college football playoff. So never a dull moment in the SEC. Yeah, not much going on. Uh, add to that, uh, I think some of the player movements, Spencer Rattler is going to go to the NFL. K.J. Jefferson's in the portal. Uh, Cam Jackson, Graham Mertz going to come back to Florida and play another year. So uh, that's just another piece of it. And that's just the, the, the tip of the iceberg of guys in the SEC that are going to move on, play somewhere else. Will Rogers, who has multiple SEC passing records, not going to play at Mississippi State again. Don't know where he's going to end up. So it's it's been a very busy week. And as you guys know, that's one of the cool things about college football now. It's it's pretty much a year-round sport when you add the portal to recruiting and early signing period and then coaching moves. It's a uh, it's a 365-day-a-year sport that we get to cover. Yeah, absolutely, Cole. It's a very interesting times. And for all the complaints about the portal and all of that, man, it sure does make it a lot more fun when otherwise it would be dead to your, to your point there. But um, a couple of coaching changes that we have seen, Texas A&M going to Mike Elko, Mississippi State to Jeff Lebby. Just curious your thoughts on – both of those moves, how do you think those guys settle in moving forward? Well, I'm a big fan of both guys. Uh, I've had a chance to work with both, work with both, cover both, and I think both have a chance to have a lot of success. Uh, Jeff Levy is in a little bit more of a difficult situation. He doesn't have the NIL funds to be able to lean on. It's one of the reasons that I didn't think Texas A&M really had to go with the big names, so to speak. I didn't think they had to have the splash hire like a lot of folks were either wanting them to or thought they needed to or were looking for them to. Uh, I'll start with Levy. Uh, he has a brilliant offensive mind. Uh, I think he's a guy that has recruited in the state of Mississippi, obviously working at Ole Miss. He knows the landscapes. He's got some relationships with those high school coaches. He's been at big-time programs. So, yes, he's a first-time head coach, but this was going to happen. Someone was going to give him this opportunity why not go ahead and get out in front of it if you're Mississippi State and get somebody in there that maybe understands the landscape a little bit more than somebody else would have? Uh, he'll be able to attract quarterbacks and receivers. So I'm interested to see where he goes with his defensive staff and what he wants to run defensively. But I think it's a really good hire for Mississippi State. You get a young coach that's energetic that's going to probably have to do some things in a different way, but that's okay because you're still Mississippi State. And I do think there's a little bit of old-school toughness still to Jeff Levy, even though he runs that wide-open offense that is high-octane. And and that's not necessarily indicative of his entire personality. As far as A&M is concerned, I'm a big Elko fan. Uh, The guy is relatable. He he obviously is a a brilliant defensive mind. 
But I think kids love playing for him. I think coaches love being around him. And my understanding is the last time he was at A&M, he was really the guy behind the scenes that was kind of massaging those relationships, having the conversations with the right people that he needed to have, you know, trying to put, you know, letting people feel good about things that were happening around the program for the right reasons. He already understood that those things needed to be happening and he wasn't really the guy in charge. So I think from that perspective, you, you look at him, he probably has a pretty good feel on what it takes to be a head coach at Texas A&M. Now, he's been a head coach at Duke, so he's got some experience. But, I mean, you add Duke to A&M to Notre Dame, like, he understands how big-time college football works. And I think he has a pretty good idea of what's going to be required of him. And he'll put a good staff together just because of the guys that he's been around. And I think he'll have a, a, an NIL war chest that's able to attract high-profile talent. And I just don't think A&M needs a guy to come in that makes a bunch of noise. They need an organizer, a motivator, and someone who can come in and manage all of it. Because that's the biggest term right now for me in college coaching is management. And that's not just your, your own roster because of what the portal is. You got to manage your coaching staff. You have to manage the portal. You have to manage traditional recruiting. You have to manage your guys that are already there maybe not wanting to go leave and go somewhere else. And then obviously you have to manage your preparation for games, your off-season programs. It's just, it's a lot right now with what goes on in a college football program. And I think Elko's up to that challenge. Yeah. And, and, and call it A&M, you know, you're, you're because of that NIL war chest you mentioned, they're not going to lose guys that are on the roster because of money. Like that, that's not going to be the reason they would lose guys because they'll they'll be able to to match the offer and keep the guys they want to keep if it came down to money. So with Jimbo Fisher, it kind of just came down to making sure these guys are getting the you know preparation for the NFL and are happy where they are in College Station, as opposed to you know this is well we lost this guy because we can't afford him. I think you're exactly right, and it's one of the reasons that I think when you think about somebody who can manage it and doesn't necessarily have to come in and run a high-profile offense or, or have a guy that has won national championships. Just have the understanding of how to build a program and, and put together a game plan to win games. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of coaches in college football that have gotten away from that. You know, a lot of it is, this is my system on defense, or this is my offense that we run, and we're going to score this many points instead of, you know, like we had John Summerall on our show and, and with McElroy a, a couple weeks ago, and we kind of asked him about his blueprint, his style. And he's like, listen, man, it changes every week. He's like, if we have to throw the ball 40 times, we'll throw it. If we have to run it 50 times, then we'll run it. If our defense has got to win a game, then we're going to lean on our defense or special teams. Just, I, I think we've gotten a little bit away from and, and listen, I think us in the media and specifically the fans are highly to blame for that. Uh, I think there's a reason that there is this fascination with Oregon right now. And, and it's what they do offensively. Uh, there's a reason that probably a lot of the conversation on the field doesn't circulate as much with Michigan uh, as it does with them, or maybe even Ohio state this year, because they have a high profile receiver, but they're not the same offense that they have been. So I, I don't really think that a lot of people look at where college football is and are satisfied with just winning games. That's pathetic to say, I get it. I understand it. And it frustrates the hell out of me, but I think there's a lot of folks that are around college football either fans of it or they cover it. And unless you score 45 points a game and you got a quarterback putting up big numbers, you're not considered to be as good or as fun to watch or have the feeling that a lot of other teams that have that actually do. 
Isn't that crazy? Because it was just a few years ago that the Big 12 was the goofy, they score 60 points a game, and they play no defense, and now you see those offenses all over the SEC because a lot of those guys have moved over there. But, yeah, I mean, if you're not scoring, suddenly you're, 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 not, uh, you're not with it, I guess. Hell, with this committee, there's some of those Big 12 teams will be, you know, way out in front, number one, <laughs> yeah. uh, with the way they view things. Yeah. Well, Cole, uh, last week uh, you were a busy man, as, as you typically are during college football season, but one of the games you got to take in was the Iron Bowl. You're an Auburn guy. I was just curious your thoughts on year one here with Hugh Freeze and uh, your, your feelings coming out of that game on, on what you saw and, and how great of a contest that was. The game was amazing. Uh, my... First off, with Hugh Freeze, I think he had a good year one. I think there were there were some things that he needed to learn that he did throughout the course of the year. I think there'll be some adjustments made year two. Uh, I think there'll probably be some frustrations with not going younger at certain positions because they could have developed guys throughout the course of the year, and the record probably wouldn't have been much different. Uh, I think they looked at a couple of veterans that they got through the portal that they they thought maybe could get them to seven or eight wins. It didn't really play out that way. But they were competitive in a couple of games that most fans, you know, if you if you really go look at the schedule, they won the majority of the games that they were supposed to, minus New Mexico State, who, by the way, is a 10-win football team playing for their conference title tomorrow. I called one of their games. They're, it's actually a good football team. They got players. And then they lost most of the games that you would have thought they would have lost at the beginning of the year. So I don't think it was a, a season that was way far ahead of where a lot of people thought they'd be or way far behind where a lot of people thought they'd be. I thought it was pretty satisfactory. Um, the Iron Bowl itself, man, um, my view on this is very different and probably not what you guys would expect. Um, I had never attended. I have three children. They're, they're eight, six, and three. Um, my daughter's eight and I have two sons that are six and three. We had never been to a college football game together. Uh, hmm. I had never taken them to a college football game, much less an wow. Auburn game. Now, they were on the sideline with me for the Auburn-Texas A&M game in Auburn last year before the game, but I had to work that game. So, you know, five minutes before kick, they're gone. I go to work. It's, it's all she wrote. I see them, you know, the next morning because the kids are already asleep. Uh, this was the first time we had been able to do that. And it was, it was one of the best days of my life and one of the best weekends of my life. You know, I, I did Fine Mom Show. I did – Marty McGee, I did SEC Nation. The kids came to the SEC Nation shit. They popped me up there for a little bit. They came running on set. Um, we were on the sideline for the majority of the game. My son found this Auburn wig. It's like the crazy hair wig, like the Guy Fieri hair. And in our condo that we're staying at, he wants to wear that all day. Regions are passing out those little pull-apart signs, and it says War Eagle. And like he just thought that that's what you did at the game. He's flashing it in people's face. And He's dancing all the music. My daughter's waving her pom-pom. My three-year-old fell asleep for about 30 minutes before the game. I was holding him on the field, and then he went for the entire game. He's dancing and running around. Like, to sit there and watch my kids immerse themselves in Auburn football in that environment, as amazing as it was, was everything. I mean, it was was kind of something I've always wanted. I've always wanted to introduce them to it that way. Would I have loved for Auburn to win that game? Absolutely. Was it devastating the way they lost it? Yes, it, it absolutely was. Um, and then, you know, to see like everything put in perspective, just how big the spectrum is under the same DNA, you know, the game ends and I kind of walk back over to the equipment trunk that my kids are sitting on. And my daughter is my eight year old is like ugly crying. Like she's crying. And it's, and it's, I mean, bad, like it's like she's hurt. And so, you know, I give her a big hug and I just tell her, I was like, listen, 
it makes me love you more that this means a lot to you and that this upsets you. I was like, I love that about you. And here comes my six-year-old son bebopping over there. And he says, what's, what's the problem? What's wrong? It's just a game. It's just a game. What, what's, what's, what's she so upset about? It's just a game. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, geez, like you are your mother. She is me. This is, I'm, I'm looking at both of us in two of our children right here. It was an amazing day. It really was. And it was, it was a hell of a game. I mean, it was an awesome game to be able to sit there and watch and take in because we were expecting it to be close for a half. And then Alabama maybe start pulling away early second half. We leave, go somewhere else, do something else. But it was, it was awesome to be down there, to stay there, to see it. I mean, like watching my three-year-old just watch the band come out. And just how mesmerized he was at like all this noise and all these people in uniform. I'm just trying to put my brain in his brain and like what he's even attempting to comprehend at field level, what's happening, watching the Eagle fly. I mean, it was just, it it was an incredible day. It really was. That is one heck of a story, Cole. Absolutely. And look, I'll tell you as a person who grew up a Red Sox fan and then they, they became really good. It's better to understand the pain when you're young. So you appreciate the glory when it happens. So yeah, I don't, I don't really like sharing this part of it, but before the final snap, I'm, I'm sitting up there, they're on, they're standing on this equipment box, one of those big, you know, the big crates that they move around the sideline. They're both like draped over my back. And I was like, I want you guys to watch the play. I want you to watch the field because you will remember this the rest of your life. Little did I know what I was setting them <laughs> up for. Um, and actually one of the things my daughter said, she's like, you said I remember this forever. And I was like, you will. This is your first Auburn game with your dad. Like, you will always remember being down here with me, going to your first Auburn game with dad. Like, you'll never forget this. And so I had to try to spin it into a positive, but um, maybe a big misstep by me with that setup there before the final <laughs> snap of the game. Yeah, yeah. Um- we got to talk about the game this weekend. I'm curious your thoughts on Bobby Petrino back to Arkansas, especially given he did an interview uh, yesterday and basically kind of, you know, shed light on Jimbo gave him. He's like, here, here's the terminology. Here's my playbook. You're here to call my plays. And then he spent most of his time trying to learn that terminology uh, the entire offseason and didn't sleep. Yeah, I hate to tell Bobby, but uh, that ain't new, buddy. Um, <laughs> I talked to Cedric Van Pran, Georgia Center, uh, at SEC Media Days. He told me they used the exact terminology of last year. Uh, go talk to Lane Kiffin or Bill O'Brien uh, or Brian Dayball. They've all used the exact same language at Alabama. That's not new. I understand he doesn't want to do that or didn't like that, but he's trying to get sympathy from folks, and this happens all over the place. This, this that's That's where it is because – intelligent head coaches don't want their players to go learn to learn new terminology. It should be a lot easier for an individual coach to go learn new terminology. So I I got no sympathy for him on that. And there really shouldn't be anybody who feels sorry for him because that's not like some Jimbo being a jerk type of a deal. That's just, that's actually becoming the norm around college football. Um, I think Bobby can call plays. I think he's a good play caller. I think he's a very good offensive coordinator. Uh, I'll be interested to see what he has to work with because you had a really good running back room. You did not have a good offensive line. You have a good young core of tight ends. You have wide receivers that are good receivers, but they couldn't separate last year. They they lacked speed and big play potential at that position. And you're just not going to be a high powered offense with receivers that can't pull away. So I think a lot of it's going to depend on that roster and what they can add and what returns and what comes back. But, Listen, I'll never say Bobby can't call plays. I mean, he, he is he is a great play caller. And I do think his demeanor 
being offset by Sam Pittman and Travis Williams and, and Cody Kennedy and some of the other coaches on that staff will be very helpful because he's, he's rough around the edges now. I mean, he, he's not a super friendly guy, but having some other really good, cool, uh, quality personalities in that facility will probably help him. All right, Cole, the big game on Saturday, one of a, you know several big games on Saturday, but out there uh, in Atlanta, it'll be the Dogs and the Tide. Uh, can't wait to see this one. Uh, obviously, a lot of playoff implications here for both teams involved, but also you've got Texas and teams like that on the outside looking in. Uh, very curious about this final score. What do you think about the game this weekend and, and what stands out to you about it? I think it's got a chance to be a great one, a classic. Uh, I mean, you could all the numbers. Nick Saban, 10-1 in SEC championship games. Alabama's 3-0 and against Georgia in the SEC championship game. You know, Saban, um, I, I, I think he's 8-2 eight and, eight and against – eight and 8-3 eight and against AP number one teams all time. I mean, the next closest coach only has four wins against the number one AP team. It's just – some of the numbers are ridiculous. Maybe the most ridiculous number heading into this game, and there's a laundry list of just stupid Nick Saban statistics that we could throw out. Guys, this is the fourth time that they've been an underdog since 2010. Crazy. Crazy. 13 college football seasons. They have not been favored <laughs> by Vegas to win four times. Like, that's just dumb when you think about it. Uh, I think what has given these two defenses trouble the last couple of weeks is misdirection, eye candy, motion, pre- and post-snip movement laterally, replays, option plays, RPOs. What I see as a problem for Georgia is they can't really morph into that. They can't become that. Now, Alabama has the opportunity to install and, and sort of mold their offense into being a lot more of that. Uh, with Jalen Milrow, they have quarterback runs. They have RPOs. They have read plays, read option plays, in which the quarterback has the ability to keep it and then read different players that they can put in I think that'll be a big advantage for Alabama in this game. And I also don't think that, that Georgia can win the game from the pocket. They're going to have to run the football, and some of the teams that they've had success running against recently has made life a lot easier on that rushing attack. They've been very aggressive up front. Ole Miss was, Tennessee was, removing themselves from a lot of their gaps, trying run stunts that Georgia just happened to hit north and south and then be out the gate. So can Georgia move this defensive front? I think it's going to be difficult. I don't think they can win the game from the pocket. Now, Carson, if if we come back Monday and we're talking about Georgia had won this game, one of two things is going to happen. Either that offensive line is going to have a big day running the football and they actually push people around, or two, Carson Beck was masterful in the quick game. If he gets the ball out on time and he gets the ball out quickly and Georgia has success with catch and run and they have the players to do that, guys like Brock Bowers, probably Dylan Bell out of the backfield, then Georgia can win this football game. If they don't, I think Dallas Turner and Chris Braswell can cause a lot of problems. If Jalen Milrow protects the football and can break that defense down with his legs, either by design or from the pocket. See, Roman Harper agrees with me. We did our show Monday. He made a pretty good point that I think is interesting. He thinks they should throw the football 35, 36 times because he knows six to 10 of those are going to turn into run plays. I don't know if you take that risk per se, but – there feels like more ways that the Alabama offense can be problematic for the Georgia defense as where the Georgia offense kind of has to do one or two things really well if they're going to go find a way to win this football game. 
Cole, thank you so much. Enjoy the weekend. Uh, thanks for hopping on the show. Great stuff. That story about your family is awesome. I'm, we're going to, we got to just put that up on YouTube by itself. It, it's such a great story that I think more people need to hear about. Just go enjoy the game with your family. That was, that was an excellent story. It was so awesome. I, and it's, you can at, at Cole Kubelik, Twitter, Instagram, I got a couple pictures up of just the game and all of us together. It was, it was, it was an amazing weekend. I appreciate you guys letting me share it. Cole, thanks a lot. Have a great weekend. Thanks for, thanks for having me, guys. That's Cole Kubelik, uh, ESPN and the SEC Network. And, yeah, uh, you know, I do think, like, yeah, you got to get the pain out of the way early, right? Like, yeah. you, you yeah. got that way you learn it, and then you build up to when it happens. You're like, oh, my gosh, you know, mm-hmm. look at this. This was awesome because you've experienced that. You know, um, I think kids who grew up Patriots fans are feeling that now in reverse, right? right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like they, or those folks that you grew up with who just happened to be Yankees, Lakers, Cowboys fans in the mid-90s, you know, yeah, from like 95 to 2000. Yeah. Just like, oh, you're also a Red Wings fan. That's weird. That's yeah. kind of North all Carolina over the basketball. place. Yeah, huh? my, yeah, my favorite. Yeah, North Carolina basketball, yeah. Alabama football, you know, yeah. just it just yeah. happened that way. You just, you just, like, walk through their room, and it's like there's a picture of Troy Aikman and Michael Jordan and Derek <laughs> yeah. Jeter, and, like, you're like, yeah. oh, no. like you, it's you're all my just, favorite players. Yeah. And then you, like, you go see them 20 years later, like, man, I love Tom Brady. Yeah. Just love Tom Brady, and I love show uh, – not what video, you know, Tony. I love the Astros, you know. Like, yeah, big Astros <laughs> fan. Yeah, all of that, yeah. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.